So today we come to a large section of Luke's gospel in which he conveys the story of a very strange banquet attended by Christ. This is one of the most beloved events in the life of our Lord. I've preached this text before. I don't think it's even possible to do this text justice. But before we leave today, I hope that this event does minister to your souls. In our text today, we're going to observe four things that occurred at this banquet. First, we're going to look at a loving deed. Second, a curious question. Third, a bold confrontation. And finally, a great forgiveness. A great forgiveness. First, let us consider the loving deed. We're told in verse 36, But a certain one of the Pharisees asked that he dine with him, and coming to the Pharisee's house, he reclined at his table. The event that we observe today actually occurs directly following an incident in which Christ leveled against his generation, and especially the scribes and Pharisees, a very sharp sharp rebuke. We're told in Luke chapter 7, verse 29, And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what shall I compare or liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Now on the surface, it appears that one Pharisee was not too upset with Christ, Christ having just uh, pronounced this judgment over this generation. He even invited him to his house for a banquet. But notice what he didn't do. He didn't have Christ's feet washed He didn't greet him with a holy kiss, and he did not anoint his head with oil. Now, in our day, we don't wash feet, and we don't anoint people's heads with oil, so this wouldn't really stand out to us unless it is, except that it's blatantly pointed out in our text that this did not occur. But in Christ's day, these were basic accommodations. In fact, washing Feet in the first century was synonymous with hospitality. It's actually one of the things that's listed as a requirement for a widow to be on the widow's list in 1 Timothy chapter 5. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 9, we read, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every 
good work. So the expectation was that if a, if a widow was to receive of the benevolence fund of the church in the, days, uh, in the day of Paul, that the expectation then was that she would, um, at least if she was to be a regular benefactor of it, that she was to uh, be a, a woman known for her hospitality. And how do you discern the hospitality in, in that day? Well, one of the things was that she would be one known for washing the feet of the saints. When the rich would hold a banquet in the first century, they would often open their homes to the general public. And the less fortunate were allowed to come and be there and even to take food with them at the end of the gathering. This was apparently such a gathering because a woman known to be a sinner had come into their midst. This was a rather regal affair, a public affair. Most likely there were many well-to-do people in attendance. All the more reason that the attendees' feet should have been washed and their heads anointed with oil. Yet we see that Christ was shown straight to the table without any of these very basic accommodations. He was shown to the table, but in all other regards he was treated as somewhat of a nuisance. We pick up in verse 37 and read, And behold, a sinful woman was in the city, also learning that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought a, an alabaster jar of fragrant oil. And halting behind his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them dry with the hair of her head, and she was kissing his feet and was anointing him with oil. Here we have an account of a woman who is only identified by one attribute. She is identified by her sin. She is identified as a sinner. It's the only identifier that we're offered. No name is given, no other description. Only by removing the gender from the equation can you get more general than that. She is, you might say, our every person. Now, I'm a, I'm a big movie guy, and I especially like old movies, and one of my favorite actors is Jimmy Stewart. He was a lifelong husband and father. He was a Presbyterian who rarely missed a Lord's Day at church, even volunteering to help with the music. He was also a, the first A-list actor to sign up for the military after America entered World War II, and he flew over 40 missions as a fighter pilot in the Army Air Corps, and he eventually retired from the U.S. Air Force Reserve as a brigadier general. But none of these off-screen accomplishments contributed to his success as an actor. Rather, it was his humility and charm that got him the roles. The directors that worked with Stewart chose to work with him because they saw him as the every man. Men of every walk of life could relate to Jimmy Stewart, even though most of them had never accomplished half of what he had accomplished in his lifetime. Our sinful woman in our text today is our every person. None of us know her. Perhaps we wouldn't have even committed the sins that she committed. Who knows? We're not told the nature of her sins. Nevertheless, the fact 
that we can relate to her story is immediately plain. We are each sinners, each and every one of us. Several pastors and commentators believe that she must have met Christ previously because she clearly had some prior awareness that she had been forgiven. Some others surmise that she perhaps had not met him, but had simply heard his public teaching and preaching and come to saving faith. Regardless, her response to this great forgiveness was great love. It was great love for the Savior. Here we see her entering the banquet with an alabaster jar and coming right up to Christ as he reclined at the table. Now, if you've seen any paintings of these types of feasts in ancient times, you may already know that the tables were not like the tables of today. They were usually U-shaped, right? In first century Galilee, the the custom would have been for men to sit around a U-shaped table that was about a foot off the ground, reclining on an elbow with their feet pointed away from the table. This woman halting behind Christ just at his feet began to weep uncontrollably. And we shouldn't think think of this as ordinary weeping. Her tears were streaming down her face such that they began to fall and wet Christ's feet. We men may not readily understand this, but this is what women might commonly refer to as their ugly crying. If she had any paint on her face, we could imagine that it would be running down her cheeks along with her tears. This was not a neat, clean scene as might be reimagined by Hollywood movie writers. This was likely a mixture of smeared mascara, tears, snot, and stringy, wet hairs. Her crying was profuse, and she would surely have swollen eyelids the next day. Who knew where her lips had been as she kissed the feet of Christ? Even the fragrant oil with which she anointed his feet was likely used for dishonorable purposes in her trade. This woman was a mess, and she didn't care who saw it. She cared more about the mess inside than the mess outside. She knew that she was a great sinner and she had come face to face with a great Savior. This messy, heartfelt deed was all that she could do. In this moment, Christ didn't tell her to go clean her face and come back when she had cleaned up her act. The tools that she used to honor Christ were surely tainted, but they were all that she had. She didn't, he didn't tell her to come back when she could honor him more properly with more appropriate and honorable means. She didn't have clean hands, clean lips, or a clean heart. She simply had a righteous a righteous, purifying Savior who had removed her sin from her as far as the east is from the west. It wasn't her righteousness that made this deed. 
worthy. It was his. It was his righteousness. We're told in verse 39, watching, the Pharisee who had invited him was saying to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman touches him, that she is a sinner. Now we return to the initial actor of the story, the Pharisee who had invited Christ to his house. Looking upon this scene, he, he recognizes the woman. It could be that he recognizes her clothes as being those of a woman of the streets. That's how most commentators take the phrase, the woman in the city. It could also be that he's seen her around and knows her reputation. Perhaps the whole city knows her reputation. We're simply not told. What we do see, however, is that the Pharisee is more concerned with her sin than he is with his own. She's outwardly known as a sinner. You can almost imagine him saying, we all see her public sin, so just imagine the sin that lies beneath. It's of utmost importance as we, in in this moment, for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the Pharisee. Okay? In the shoes of the Pharisee. We must recognize our own tendency to use the sins of others to overlook our own. We can think of numerous examples of public sinners or just nuisances above whom we elevate ourselves. The woman who dresses inappropriately for church. The man who has never been diligent to provide for his family. The child who talks back to his parents in public. The parents who are bad parents. The woman who left her husband and kids for an adulterous relationship. The man who was arrested for domestic violence. The homosexual or the lesbian, the nurse at the abortion clinic. All of these, we claim that we can imagine them standing at the altar and beating their breasts and crying out, Have pity on me, Lord, a sinner. Yet as long as they remain in their sins... Do we bring our offering to the altar and lift up our faces thanking God that we're not like them? Do we think lightly of the sin, the sin debt that we incurred before Christ? Do we really think ourselves less sinful than anyone else? Only what they say and do is apparent to us. But we are daily exposed to the depths of the depravity of our own hearts. How can we look intently at the depravity of our own hearts and minds and still think anyone else a greater sinner when all we see is what they say and do? If we ever find ourselves thinking ourselves better than anyone, We've not truly assessed our own sin and the eternity of hell that it deserves. Well, that brings us to a curious question. We're told in verse 40, 
And answering, Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, teacher, say it. Notice first that we're told that Christ answered Simon. These are thoughts in Simon's head. And Christ answered. Remember the words of his thoughts. If this man were a prophet. Not only is Christ about to answer Simon with words, he's also answering him in action. In the very action of calling him on his thoughts. Simon sought to discredit Christ as a prophet in his own in his own thinking, but Christ in responding to his mere thoughts demonstrates that he is more than a mere prophet. What prophet is there that knows a man's heart? Who is it that knows a man's heart but God alone? Yet we know that Christ knows the hearts of men. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, And he said to him, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And finally, in, verse, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? If one were genuinely looking for the signs of a prophet, one needed look no further. In fact, even a prophet could not have known the Pharisees' thoughts. That capability belongs to God alone. Nevertheless, if he seeks a prophet, he is about to get one, the likes of Nathan, when he stood before David and said, You are the man. He's about to be confronted with the state of his own soul. And this is always the work of the prophetic word, is it not? The prophetic word works as a mirror to reveal the truth of a man standing before God. When we come to the word of God, finally and fully issued in the holy scriptures of the Old and the New Testament, we come to the very mirror of our souls. As we continue in our text, Simon is about to have the mirror held up to his soul. In verse 41 we read, this is Christ asking his, or setting up his question. He says, two debtors owed a certain moneylender. The one having owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them being able to repay him, he promptly canceled their debts. Which of them will love him more? Some of you children may have learned the Lord's Prayer. We're told in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If you've ever wondered 
what was meant by the petition and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we find the answer here. Jesus tells about two men who owed money to someone who had left them, uh, who had let them borrow money, his money. They both owed a lot of money. One simply owed less than another. When you owe someone money, it's called debt. And someone who owes money is called a debtor. In Jesus' story, the man who lent them the money is called the lender. The problem was neither debtor was able to pay off the debt that they owed to the lender. Neither one had the money to pay him back. In that day, a man who owed a sizable debt, what do you think happened to him? In that day, a man who owed a sizable debt might have gone so far as to sell himself or one of his children into slavery in order to work off that debt. This lender was kind, though. He forgave both of them. And every day that we live, we sin against God. Each sin that we commit only adds to the debt that we owe to God. And this is a debt that none of us can repay. From birth, we owe an insurmountable debt. However, on the cross of Christ, our debt was paid in full. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is what Christ has accomplished on behalf of all of us who are debtors to God. Jesus' question here to the Pharisee cuts to the very heart of the matter. Which of them loved him more? The debtor who was forgiven the greater debt, the one who was forgiven, or or the one who was forgiven the lesser debt? Well, in verse 43, we have the answer of Simon. We're told, answering, Simon said, I suppose the one who who he forgave much. And he said to him, you judged correctly. It appears as though Simon might have an idea where Christ is going with his question. He begins his answer with, I suppose. He was clearly hesitant to answer this question. It appears to be a trap. And if Simon was at the synagogue service where Christ healed the man with the withered hand, when Christ, knowing the thoughts of the Pharisees, asked whether it is lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath before healing the man, he would surely know that Christ could not himself be trapped. If anything, Simon surely knew that he was about to stumble into a trap of his own. So now we come to a bold confrontation in Christ's response back to Simon. We're told in verse 44, And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Before observing Christ's full explanation of the analogy, we should stop 
We should stop early and, and observe Christ's directing of the players. Like a master director, Christ is here maneuvering the actors on the stage. On the one hand, he has Simon the Pharisee, who is the host of the banquet. On the other hand, we see the woman identified only by her great sin. Up until now, the interaction has been solely between either Christ and the woman or Christ and Simon. It's either been between Christ and the woman or Christ and Simon. Now Christ makes a vital connection. He very simply tells Simon to look at the woman. He forces this regal host, this moral pillar of Israel to stop and consider this person that he has dehumanized in his own mind. This woman, he has reduced down to nothing more than her sin. This woman, he has robbed of her dignity as an image bearer of God. It's as though Christ has taken Simon's thoughts about the woman and fixed them securely on her, not as a sinner, but as a person. Look at her. Consider her. Don't think just of her sin. Think of her humanity. Think of that intrinsic dignity that she shares with all mankind by virtue of having been made in the divine image. We're told in verse 44, in turning to the woman, he was saying to Simon, do you see this woman? When I entered into your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them dry with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the moment that she came in, this one has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Now Christ turns to the third actor on the stage. He affectionately turns to the woman while continuing to address Simon. He turns to her and recounts her great kindness notice what is missing in his description of her actions there's no mention of the mess he doesn't mention the the smeared mascara the gobs of snot the matted hair the unclean lips any act that simon might have done by washing christ's feet anointing his head with oil or welcoming welcoming him with a kiss of love in that day, would have been just a standard greeting. This woman did all of that, but she did so with her tears, with expensive perfume, with her own hair, letting down her hair, which was so taboo in that day. And she did so continually from the moment that she entered until this very moment. Her actions were not attempts to earn merit with Christ, but love for the debt that he had forgiven. As such, her actions were beyond what was expected. Her actions were actions of heartfelt love in response to having been loved. She was the unlovable recipient of the love of an infinitely eternally unchangeably loving 
Savior. She knew herself to be undeserving. Her actions then must have seemed so feeble and worthless to her. Would that she could offer anything of worth to such a great Savior. The mere thought of such inability is enough to inflict the most callous of hearts by the work of the Spirit with an un, an abundance of godly sorrow. So we come to verse 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven because she loved much, but the one forgiven little loves little. Christ, he, he doesn't deny that she's a great sinner. In fact, he affirms it. What Christ denies is that her identity ought to be that of a sinner. That's not her identity. She's not a sinner. She's forgiven. She's not a debtor. She is debt-free. She's not a slave. She's a child of God. None of this came to her by way of her meriting it. Don't think for a moment that this is the meaning of Christ's words. What Christ means to demonstrate is that her love, which is much, came as a result of having been forgiven much. This fact is clear by observing Christ's last clause. He says, but the one forgiven little loves little. He doesn't mean to say that anyone is truly forgiven little. If we truly understand the Bible's testimony regarding sin, we know that all of us, are great sinners. All of us. What Christ means to demonstrate here is that those who think lightly of their sin will also think lightly of the forgiveness of it. We must consider the weight of our sin long and hard. We must feel the weight of the burden of sin on our backs if we are to truly feel the relief and the lightness that follows its removal at the foot of the cross. Let us each consider long the eternal depths and vastness of the debt that we owe to God as a result of our personal sins against Him so that the gospel can work in us the love that we claim to have for him. And that brings us to a great forgiveness. We're told in verse 48. Sorry. We're told in verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Remember that her identity was wrapped up in her sin. That's who she was known to be. She was a sinner. Now, her sins are forgiven. Her identity as a sinful woman has been crucified with Christ. Now she has been raised to walk in newness of life. She has a new identity and it is all wrapped up in Him. This is true of all who turn from their sins and place their faith in Christ. We're no longer to be counted sinners. 
That's no longer our identity. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Rather, we are enslaved to righteousness. In verse 49, we read, And those reclining at table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this that forgives sins? When the others who were reclining at table heard Christ forgive her sins, they were struck with wonder. But of course they were. There's nothing necessarily sinful in their amazement. Imagine for a moment that a man were to show up at sovereign joy and start declaring men and women forgiven of their sins. We would think him crazy to think that he had such authority. They're actually on the right track to ask such a question. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. They're only one connection away from the proper answer. We almost want to stand there and nudge them and say, Go on! You're almost there. Who alone has the right to forgive sins? Say it! You know you want to. Verse 50. But he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In verse 50, we have the final conclusion all wrapped up in Christ's last two sentences. First, he tells the forgiven woman, Your faith has saved you. Well, what do we make of this? Is this some work of believing that she has conjured up that we're now to believe merits her salvation? No. Christ isn't saying that her ability to believe affects her salvation. Rather, it is the object of her faith that has saved her. She has placed her faith in Him and so she is saved. It's as though Christ is making clear that she is not saved by her tears. She is not saved by her alabaster jar or the contents of it. She is not saved by kissing his feet or washing the, the tears away, wiping the tears away with her hair. She was saved before all of that. Her faith has saved her. And according to Ephesians 2, even that faith is a gift from God. Second, he tells the forgiven woman, go in peace. Christ has not promised her a peaceful existence in the city. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that she's going to have a tranquil life among her fellow citizens. She'll still be mocked. And assuming that she is a woman of the streets, having turned from those sins, she'll likely now be destitute without income. She may never find love because she'll be seen as unclean and an outcast in society. So how can he tell her go in peace? Regardless of all these things, nevertheless, she now has peace of mind knowing that there is no longer any enmity between her and God. She, now, she is now a, a beloved daughter of the King Most High, and she 
no longer has to see herself as being at odds with him. She can be settled. Her restless heart can now rest. How many of you need this peace today? How many of you men or women are struggling with addiction to pornography and feel estranged from God as though he has declared you an enemy? How many of you are struggling with bitterness or contempt in your soul, anxiety or covetousness, and you can't remember the last time you experienced peace with God? How many of you come Lord's Day after Lord's Day and leave feeling worse than you came because you think that you have to rid yourself of sin in order to earn peace with God? Well, that's not how grace works. That's not how the gospel works. You must come to terms with the fact that you cannot earn your salvation. You must realize that your forgiveness is already secure. Only then can you hope to see the victory in your battle against sin. Because only then will your struggle against sin be a struggle done out of love rather than duty or seeking after merit. Stop fighting, brother. Stop struggling, sister. Receive the forgiveness that Christ has provided for you and simply love him. All the rest will follow. Look beyond the sin by which you have been identified and embrace the identity that you have in Christ. Come to him as sinful man or sinful woman and come away as forgiven man or forgiven woman. Finally, flee from the temptation to be like this Pharisee. Search the depths of the sins that have been forgiven you so that you might appreciate the forgiveness, that forgiveness all the more. That's the only way to escape the, tra- the trap of thinking yourself better than your fellow sinners. You must ever have that canceled debt before your eyes in order that the godly sorrow of true repentance can do its humbling work in your soul, preventing you from thinking yourself any better than even the greatest sinner in your life. We see the sin that others do in public on the surface. If we truly understand the depravity of our own hearts, the public sins of others should pale in comparison. If we truly understand the debt that Christ paid on our behalf, we would by no means begrudge the debt that he has forgiven in others. Amen? Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today asking that you would help each and every one of us to see ourselves in this every person. Not the sinful woman. That was her old identity. But that we would see ourselves in the forgiven woman 
and recognize that we have been forgiven much, each and every one of us. And recognizing that we have been forgiven much, that we would each and every one of us be willing to look upon others that seem by our own feeble, fallen estimation to be greater sinners than ourselves. We would look upon them with mercy and with the love with which Christ has looked upon them. I pray, Lord, that not just for your local church here at Sovereign Joy or in San Angelo at Sovereign Grace, but for the universal church and for all local bodies, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in us to help us to recognize that each and every one of us are forgiven sinners. That we would see that we would identify one another's as being united to Christ. That that righteousness that God sees in us, that imputed righteousness of Christ, that would be the same righteousness that we see in others. No matter how they may have sinned against us, no matter how they may have sinned against others, to recognize them as one who has been forgiven, who stands in the righteousness of Christ and to be treated as such. Not that we would avoid confronting people in their sin. That's obviously not biblical, Lord, but we just pray that you would help us to overlook sin, that we would cover sin as love is meant to do, covering a multitude of sin. to take in that broken trust, that broken faith that we have placed in others, not to ignore it, but to recognize it, to, to, to know that we need to work through it, but to know at the end of the, of the day that this is a person who stands in the righteousness of Christ. And that our understanding of them, the way that we identify them, the way that we see them needs to be aligned with the way that God sees them. As sinners just like we are, who need the forgiveness of Christ just like we do, and to love one another. We thank you for the love that we have been shown in Christ, and we pray, Lord, that it would abound in great love toward one another in the body of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.